The time is at hand. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. But I am telling you right now. We need a great reset. And this, this is, is extremely, extremely dangerous, dangerous to our democracy. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. observed on October 31st, evening before All Saints Day. It originated from the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, when the souls of the dead returned to visit their homes. The celebration includes wearing costumes, carving pumpkins, and trick-or-treating. And there's also some true scary Halloween stories. Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, this week, in Dark Places. My name is Junebug Fugit, and I saw a UFO. <laughs> I estimate that I've probably seen around 100 UFOs in my lifetime, but this most recent one was on October 5th, 2023. I pulled into the parking lot to go to work, and my eyes were just immediately drawn to it looking out in the horizon toward the east and I was kind of looking at the tree line up on the ridge and all that and just right exactly where I was looking I saw this cigar shaped thing just sitting there in the sky kind of hanging over top of the power lines and it wasn't moving it was just sitting still there for a good 30 seconds I was looking at it it never did move and I started thinking about how people take pictures with their cell phone and it looks like crap but I wanted to document it so I got out of the car to take a picture with my cell phone and I stood up and I couldn't see the thing and I was like eh, now wait a minute I was just looking at it when I was sitting down in the car it was there and now it's gone all of a sudden that don't make sense so I sat back down in the car and I could see it. So that tells me that it was at an altitude lower than that mountain that I was looking at over that way. And it was only visible from when I was sitting down at a lower level in my car. Because when I stood up, I was losing sight of it behind the trees and stuff there on the mountain. So it was very low. And it was probably about the size of a car, I'm guessing. I took two pictures of it, and they both look like crap. But I will attach them into the YouTube version of this episode so you can check it out. What I did get, you can see that there's something in the sky. You just can't see any kind of details or anything. <laughs> and when I went back out later on my break, there was nothing there. So it wasn't anything suspended by the power lines or anything like that it was some kind of flying object a drone or something maybe I don't know I couldn't see it it wasn't close enough it was probably I guess 10 miles away from it 
but it was pretty cool. Did a UFO piloted by aliens visit Varginha, Brazil in 1996? Cassidy Ward fills us in on it. Thanks, Cassidy. UFOs might be enjoying a moment right now, but they've been a part of human culture for a long time. While the modern image of flying saucers is relatively new, people have reported strange objects in the sky, sometimes piloted by non-human creatures for thousands of years. Although, whatever they are, they haven't always been thought of as extraterrestrials from space. Varginha is Brazil's answer to Roswell, and for now, we still don't have answers about what actually happened there. The comparison to Roswell comes not just because of a UFO sighting, but because the craft allegedly crashed. Residents interacted with the non-human pilots, and the whole thing ended with a military cover-up. The execution is slightly different, but the basic recipe for both UFO stories is essentially the same. Multiple witnesses reported seeing a bipedal creature, which was decidedly not human. They described it as unsteady on its feet, appearing to be sick or injured, with two large red balls for its eyes. Others reported seeing a strange metal object losing altitude over the area before hitting the ground, and a strong, almost overbearing smell of sulfur. Other witnesses described the creature as having brown, oily skin, no hair, and a distinct look of fear in their eyes. Allegedly, after authorities responded to the area to track down the creatures, police officer Marco Eli Cherez apprehended one barehanded, later fell ill to a mysterious full-body infection and died. Last year, filmmaker James Fox released Moment of Contact, documenting the alleged events which occurred in Brazil nearly three decades ago. The documentary's key witness is an anonymous military expert known only as Military X, who claims they were there when one of the aliens was taken, and that video footage does exist. If that's true, no such video has surfaced. Witnesses also claim that whatever was recovered, including crash debris and any occupants, was later taken by the United States government. If true, that lines up pretty nicely with the recent claims made by UFO whistleblower David Grush. However, all we really have are a bunch of half-remembered stories from a quarter of a century ago and no tangible evidence to speak of. That's par for the course when it comes to aliens. Some things never change. And now here is your Nicholas Cage, Meal Down of the Week.
This is the story of little Nima Louise Carter from Lawton, Oklahoma, 1977. It was Halloween night, and Nima Louise Carter's exhausted parents finally lay the 18-month-old to sleep in their Oklahoma home. To their horror, she wasn't there the next morning. Creepily, the windows of the room that Nima was in were locked that night, meaning that whoever abducted her must have been hiding in the closet when her parents placed her in the crib. Almost four months later, some children were playing in an abandoned house in the same neighborhood as the Carter household. As they opened the door of the house's refrigerator, they were beyond shocked to find the remains of an 18-month-old baby who was identified as the missing Nima Louise Carter. Think that house is haunted? Forensic inspection revealed that the child died of suffocation. Horrifically, the exact same situation had occurred the year prior. Three-year-old twin sisters were lured out of their homes by a young woman and abducted, being stuffed into the fridge inside another abandoned home in Lawton, Oklahoma. Why are there so many fridges in abandoned homes in Lawton, Oklahoma, is my question. One of the sisters unfortunately met her fate. The other miraculously survived despite being locked in the fridge for two days. The survivor was able to identify her abductor as Jacqueline Robidoux, a local teenage babysitter. But because of the girl's young age and lack of other evidence at the time, Jacqueline was never indicted. And as fate would have it, Nima Louise Carter's babysitter was none other than Jacqueline Robidoux. Obviously, Jacqueline was a prime suspect in the kidnapping and murder of little Nima Carter, but again, there was not enough evidence to press charges. Years later, she was finally arrested and formally indicted with the murder of the aforementioned twin sister and given a life sentence. She died in 2005 after being diagnosed with liver cancer in jail. The murder of Martha Moxley. The body of the 15-year-old girl was discovered on October 31, 1975. A resident of the wealthy community of Greenwich, Connecticut, Martha had been bludgeoned to death with a golf club. She was last seen hanging out with Thomas Shackle, her neighbor and a nephew of Ethel Shackle Kennedy, whose husband, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, had been assassinated seven years earlier. It was Thomas's younger brother, Michael, however, who was tried and convicted in 2000 for her murder. It's not a typo. The case had remained unsolved for 25 years. The wheels of justice not only turn slowly, sometimes they swerve off the road. Michael served 10 years in prison, then was granted a new trial based on a judge's finding that his original defense attorney had not adequately represented him. He was freed on $1.2 million bail in 2013, and after years of lawyering, his conviction was vacated, and a new trial was ordered. On October 30th, 2020, 
45 years to the day since Martha was last seen alive, the state announced it would not retry him. In a bizarre coincidence, a best-selling true crime book about Martha Moxley's murder, published in 1999, was written by Mark Furman, the infamous cop whose racism revealed through evidence presented at O.J. Simpson's murder trial, arguably did as much damage to the prosecution as those ill-fitting gloves. So you know when you're a kid and everything seems super exciting and you go out and you throw eggs at random people's houses or people or cars or whatever. This is the egging murder. 21-year-old Carl Jackson was fatally shot on Halloween 1998 by Curtis Sterling, 17, one of a group of boys he had confronted after they egged his girlfriend's car. According to an informal tally by the New York Times, at least 24 people between 1984 and 2010 were seriously wounded or killed in stabbings, shootings, beatings, or accidents sparked by egg-throwing confrontations around Halloween. In its 2010 story, the Times reported, two days before Halloween in 1994, a man leaving a bar in Brooklyn was hit with eggs tossed by several boys. The man stabbed and killed one of the boys, a 12-year-old. In 1996, a 10-year-old Brooklyn boy was shot in the neck by a stray bullet after an egg fight on Halloween. On October 29, 2005, Joseph Padro, 31, the brother of a police detective, was shot and killed in the Bronx after he chased a group of teenagers who pelted his minivan with eggs. Here's another scary Halloween story for you. This one is out of Fort Dodge, Iowa in 1982. Marvin Brandland and his wife Ethel had their bowls of candy ready and waiting. It was Halloween and the children of the neighborhood were trick-or-treating. Later into the evening, Marvin and his wife heard a knock at the door and went to open it. Ethel, we got trick-or-treat! The first thing they heard was, Trick-or-treat! Give me your money or I'll shoot! Not a normal response. They looked up and saw someone in a homemade mask made out of a pillowcase with the eyes cut out. Marvin and Ethel laughed, thinking it was a Halloween prank being pulled on them by a friend or family member. That was until the person produced a gun and ordered them to lead him to the safe, a safe which few knew existed. Marvin and Ethel laughed uneasily. How did this person know about the safe? If he wasn't a family member, still convinced that this was an elaborate and unfunny prank, Marvin reached for the gun and tried to wrestle it out of the person's hand. The attacker... In the tussle that followed, 
shot Marvin Brandlin in the throat. Panicking, the shooter then took off his homemade mask and made a dash towards the door. You know how people always talk about the Andy Griffith show and simpler times and how there was like good, wholesome, loving families and friends and all that stuff back in the olden days. Well, how about this one from 1945? Teenagers in Toronto spent Halloween night rioting and building large bonfires that they stoked with gasoline. When police descended upon the scene, the teenagers fought back, throwing rocks and blocking the fire department from putting out the flames. Soon, police arrested 14 of the rioters, but instead of calming things, this led to a mob of thousands of teenagers gathering in protest. The teenagers were only dispersed after being doused with water cannons and tear gas. The reason for this uprising is unknown. Dragonberry cereal is coming your way. How about a monster for breakfast today? Thanks. And how about some wonderful Frankenberry cereal with oodles and oodles of strawberry-flavored marshmallows. And Frankenberry is part of this good, nutritious breakfast. Here comes Dalchocula. Wish you could stay. How about a monster for breakfast today? On October 31st, 2011, a pretty young zombie left her house in Armstrong, British Columbia. Looking forward to a night of fun. The zombie was Taylor Van Deest, an 18-year-old student, and she was planning to meet up with her friend to go trick-or-treating. She never made the rendezvous, but before she went missing, she sent her friend a chilling text message saying that she thought someone was following her. It was the last anybody heard from her. Hours later, Taylor was found beside a railroad track. Her head was bleeding and there were bruises around her neck. She died in the hospital. The brutal murder shook the small town community and police were quick to nab a man named Matthew Forrester who confessed in tears after a two-hour interrogation. The exact details of the attack are hazy. Even after the trial, but Forrester claimed that he followed her to a lonely part of town and then attacked her. She resisted. So Forrester grabbed her by the neck and pushed her to the ground. At that point, Forrester either bludgeoned her with a flashlight or bashed her head down over a metal pipe. He then left her in the dirt and fled to Ontario, where police tracked him down. Forrester was convicted of first-degree murder and received a life sentence. Another Halloween horror story, and I get to start it with Night Fever by the Bee Gees. How a knock on the wrong door led to teens' tragic death. Almost three decades after a Japanese exchange student knocked on the wrong door and was fatally shot, his parents, host family, and lawyer have spoken out. Yoshi Hattori was 16 years old in 1992, buckle my shoe, 
when he went over to the United States through an exchange program. Yoshi was the second oldest child of Masachi and Miko Hattori, and he stayed with Richard and Holly Haymaker and their son Webb in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Speaking, <laughs> I got to stop here. You know, sometimes people's uh, last name or is what they um, did for a living. Imagine uh, Richard and Holly Haymaker's um, great-great-great-grandparents just gave people big giant punches in the head. Yep, they're the haymakers. Okay, speaking to the BBC in a recent interview, Yoshi's parents said their son became eager to go to the United States when he passed a test for the American Field Services. In his application for the program, Yoshi wrote how he wished he could make the country his second home and said he could introduce Japanese cuisine and the way of life to his host family. Nice kid. In 1992, Yoshi headed to the United States for the year-long exchange program. His former host mother, Holly Haymaker, every time I say that name, I think of somebody getting walloped in the head, described Yoshi as a total extrovert and said he was well-liked by his peers at his high school in the United States. He was a really, really extraordinary guy. He was life. He moved through space like a dancer, she told the program. Webb Haymaker was 16 when Yoshi stayed with the family, and the two attended festivals together and were invited to a Halloween party northeast of Baton Rouge. On Saturday, October 17, 1992, Webb and Yoshi were dressed for the Halloween party, Webb as an accident victim, and Yoshi as John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. The two mistook a house with Halloween decorations and a similar address for the place of the party. The two saw a woman poke her head out of the side garage before slamming it, and they knocked on the front door. Webb recalled to the BBC he started to walk down the block thinking they had gotten the wrong address. Then Rodney Paris opened the door with a gun in his hand. Yoshi was very eager to get to the party and didn't understand. I guess that Paris had a gun. Maybe he thought it was a Halloween thing, Webb said. While Yoshi made his way to the front door eagerly, exclaiming, We're here for the party! Paris yelled, Freeze! When Yoshi didn't stop moving towards the door, potentially not understanding Paris, he was shot once in the chest, while the man went back inside, slamming the door. Yoshi died in the ambulance from the loss of blood. During the trial, Paris testified he saw Yoshi and believed him to be a crazed intruder. You know, if somebody came dressed up as John Travolta and was all excited to see me, I probably wouldn't shoot the guy. Just saying. And mistook his camera for a weapon. Paris's wife would testify she saw the two teens and panicked, yelling at her husband to get his gun. At first, Paris was not taken into custody. Police believed he had every right to defend his property. It wasn't until a local politician, oh boy, stepped in and the police charged him with manslaughter. After the jury declared Paris not guilty, Masachi said he was saddened and he hoped Americans would respond to the Hattori's petition to limit gun violence in America.
The Hattori's over in Japan amassed over 1.7 million signatures on a petition. And the haymakers also decided to help the family and they received 150,000 signatures by mail. In 1994, the Paris were found liable to the Tories in order to pay $650,000 in damages in a civil suit. The family used the money to set up two charitable funds, blah, 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 so they can learn what it's like to live in a place without guns, Miko Hattori told the Honolulu advisor in 2000. No comment. When he wasn't delivering sermons to the small congregation of his Michigan church, John White dreamed of necrophilia. On a bitterly cold Halloween night in 2012, White took a mallet and a zip tie and went to the home of Rebecca Gay, his fiancée's 24-year-old daughter. Rebecca lived alone with her three-year-old son, and she happily let him inside. White often babysat. Her little boy so it wasn't uncommon for him to stop by but she wasn't expecting what came next white bludgeoned her repeatedly with the mallet before wrapping a zip tie around her neck and tightening it then white stripped her down and carried her body into the woods behind the trailer when he returned to the house rebecca's toddler son was still there waiting while rebecca's body grew cold out back White calmly dressed her son in his Halloween costume and drove him over to his father's house. The body wasn't found for another 20 hours, and while police surged, White asked his congregation to pray for the woman. White was convicted and later committed suicide in prison, but the real horror of the story is perhaps that he'd ever been free at all. In 1981, John White was 22 when he tried to kill his neighbor, 17-year-old Teresa Etherton. White invited her into his basement and while she was looking at a racetrack he'd built, White stabbed her in the back. Then he kissed her, smiled, and kept stabbing her. Teresa survived the attack with 15 stab wounds and White spent two years in prison. In 1994, White struck again, this time killing the woman he was having an affair with and leaving her naked body in the woods but without evidence that he'd intended to kill her, prosecutors could only convict White on manslaughter charges. By 2007, he was a free man, free to live his life, free to become a minister, and free to kill once more. Hey, that's about all of the scary true Halloween stories part two Freddy's Revenge that we have for you we'll be back here next week with part three we'll see you then thanks as always Jimmy Haunted thank you for listening God bless and we'll see you